0: Welcome to episode 528 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast, presented by Overdrive. Uh, Just Adam on this Monday episode. Uh, I am so overjoyed with the conversation that I got to have uh, that you're about to hear in just a moment. Um, I sat down via Zoom, of course, uh, with Suleika Jawad, who is the now New York Times Best-selling author of Between Two Kingdoms, Uh, you may also know Suleika from her New York Times uh, column, Life Interrupted, and she had uh, a TED Talk that she um, that was viewed millions of times over the past couple years. Uh, Suleika, when she was twenty-two, had was diagnosed with leukemia, and she was given a prognosis that she had about a thirty percent chance of living. Um. spoiler alert, she is alive. Uh, that was about a decade ago. And she wrote this book about her experience, but not just about her experience of going through um, the diagnosis and treatment, but also how she struggled to and then found her way in transitioning um, back to real life, um, kind of between the, the kingdom of the sick in the the kingdom of the living,
1: Um,
0: it felt it's a very poignant conversation because of all the isolation she had to do while sick and in the hospital um, compares greatly with all of the isolation we've all been experiencing now for a full calendar year. So it was, you know, every once in a while I get to have a conversation with someone where it just instantly feels like we're kind of clicking it on the same page. And that's sort of how I felt chatting with Suleika. So, uh, yeah, I, her book again, it, it was, it's her first book. It came out, uh, I think three weeks ago at this point, and it debuted on the New York Times bestsellers list. And it's just one of those books where it has stayed with me. And I know that it's going to be one that I think of all year round. Um, it's heartbreaking, but also inspirational. And I think you're just going to love it. Uh, if you have feedback on this or any of our episodes, you can, of course, always go to professionalbooknerds.com to contact us or just email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com um, or just shoot us a tweet or a message on Instagram at ProBookNerds. I uh, would love to hear from you. Uh, I hope you guys check out this book, um, borrow it, listen to the audiobook, which Sue Laker does, um, go buy it, buy a copy of it for a friend or a family member it's just a very special book. It's one, you know, only these books don't come around that often. And I, I I implore you to read this one. Uh, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Um, I'm going to let you get right to this conversation. So I hope you guys enjoyed this chat with the truly incredible Suleika Jawad on the professional book nerds podcast. Do you want to just kind of kick us off by giving our listeners maybe an introduction to Between Two Kingdoms?
1: Sure. Uh, so Between Two Kingdoms is uh, my first book. Uh, it's a memoir about um, a difficult passage in my 20s um, following a diagnosis of leukemia when I was 22. Uh, but more than that, it's about the imprints of a major life disruptions on our minds, on our bodies, on our relationships, Uh, and it's about aftermaths. What happens when we survive what was thought to be unsurvivable, and we have to figure out how to begin anew, Um, and that's very much uh, been my work in the last decade as I've emerged Um, from this experience. And um, it was, you know, uh, an experience that felt so omnipresent that it became my subject, uh, even though that wasn't necessarily something I sought out or planned.
0: Well, and something that I I was really, I I loved about your book is, you know, it's obviously, it's called Between Two Kingdoms. and, And you talk a lot about you know, the difference between like the kingdom of the living and the kingdom of, you know, the sick. And, but what I loved about the book is so often, I think when people, and I know you've heard these things before about like, oh, your journey as a cancer survivor. And, I, but you extend the book beyond your, you know, your bout with cancer, your fight, your, whatever, your journey, whatever you want to, you know, insert now and here, but you extend beyond that and talk about what kind of happens next. And And I just, I love that concept of, you know, living beyond like a moment and answering sort of now what. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, when you were writing the book, did you always know that you wanted it to be both aspects of the process or was it something that sort of came along organically when you started writing about, you know, your time in hospitals and everything like that?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So when I started to think about writing a book, I um, didn't want to write about illness. In fact, I was desperate to write about anything else. Um, And at that time, I had the great honor of interviewing Cheryl Strayed. um, And she gave me some advice that I think is excellent advice, uh, which is essentially that I would write the story I needed to write. And Mm -hmm. I had no business trying to avoid that. Uh, (laughs) And she was right. So I uh, knew I... Wanted to write about the aftermath of that experience. I was interested in in reentry, um, and um, you know, I remember when I was sick, reading, you know, all kinds of different illness narratives and and cancer books. And the final act of that book was always, you know, the the survivorship, the the cure. Um, but no one really seemed to give much ink to what happened after. Uh, So I think because of that, in my mind, you know, the goal was obviously to survive and and to be cured, um, even if that didn't always feel within the realm of the possibility or within the realm of possibility. Um, And I'm not sure I gave much thought as to what would happen after that. I think I just kind of assumed I would return to the kingdom of the world that I'd kind of organically and eagerly fold back into the rhythms of living Uh, But that didn't happen. Um, You know, and reentry and and the challenges of it is something that we talk about in the context of, you know, prisoners returning from war or, um, sorry, uh, soldiers returning from war and prisoners being released. Um, But it's not really something we talk about in the context of other kinds of traumas, like an illness. Um, And so I found myself... In this place where I felt like I should feel, you know, grateful and mm-hmm. excited and, and ready to start living my life again, uh, but in fact, I'd never felt more lost, and I felt, you know, suspended in this strange kind of liminal space.
0: Well, and I think that's I, I think that's why so many people are relating to your book, even if they've never personally been touched by, you know, a, a, a sickness that you have, is because there's this concept of re-entry that you talk so much about and this expectation that like okay so like it now you're okay goodbye and it's like that's not how life works and I think there's so many there's so many versions of that that people can relate to whether it's even something like graduating college like you know you mm. there's that it's that weird feeling where you go and you get your diploma and let's be honest we're all super hungover and like sweating in your <laughs> gowns and like there's this huge celebration and then you get handed this diploma and you've in theory, moved out of your, you know, apartment or, you know, dorm room, wherever you're living. And maybe your family goes to like the olive garden or somewhere to get a, a lunch. And then it's like, okay, be figured out. And it is, it's like in all aspects of life, there's this concept of re-entry where it's like, but it's so rare that like it's almost like you just kind of get pushed off the deep end. And it's like,
1: hmm.
0: like you said, you walked out of the, the hospital and it's like, all right, continue living your life that you had to put on hold for so long like it's I don't know this again this isn't really a question so much it's just like I think so many people can can understand that concept
1: well and it occurs to me that we're all kind of living that now um since the pandemic right Mm -hmm. like in the early days when everyone and everything went into lockdown, we were talking about it as like a pause or an interruption. And I think that was like aspirational thinking. There was a sense that, okay, we have to do this for a couple of weeks and then life will return to normal. And of course, you know, I, almost a year later here, we still are, mm-hmm. um, you know, many of us isolated at home. And, and if we are kind of stepping out into the world for wearing masks and we're doing so with a sense of hypervigilance, um, and it's um, I think it's a it's a difficult process because there may be a clear kind of endpoint to life mm-hmm. before, but but the beginnings of reentry are aren't as clear and and the path forward is is murky. Um, and I know that for me, you know, I certainly felt that sense when I graduated from college, and yeah. I felt it in a heightened way when I finished treatment. Uh, but it was this feeling of like, I can't return to the person that I was, mm-hmm. uh, but I have no idea who I am now and how to find my way forward. Um, it's But it's interesting,
0: like you talk, you know, comparing, you know, thinking about the pandemic and like reentry from that, you talk in your book about, it, almost it's a strange concept like missing the hospital ecosystem in the sense of like the people and the kind of daily driving purpose of like okay you know this goal that you have is to keep your existence to survive to live and then you know after that you've achieved as you know you've like you said you've been you know declared healthy like now what and, and I, I've been thinking about that a lot with the pandemic because you know I've I see my parents every once in a while now but it's still like outside and like from a distance and they both thankfully got their they've they've both been vaccinated they're a little bit older and it's like the relief I felt I didn't even know I was holding my breath when they mm-hmm. told me those things but I've been thinking a lot about it like our company is beginning to think about the process of when we'll all come back to the office and it's this like unnerving feeling that I didn't even know I had because mm-hmm. I've started to be like, wait, I've, as much as I'm lonely all the time in my home, i miss, I, I, I know that I don't like, it's almost like I don't wanna leave mm-hmm. this isolation because I'm afraid of I, just of what is happening and change. And yeah, I, I don't know, it's, it's a strange concept to understand that the world's gonna open up again. And I'm almost like, do I wanna become a part of that world again?
1: Totally. And I don't know about you. Um, and I felt this, you know, when I was in treatment and I felt it in this last year during the pandemic, like when possibility and choice is removed, there's a strange kind of centering yeah. quality to that. Like all the the busyness and the artifice gets stripped away and mm-hmm. our days are simpler. Yeah. Um, and you know we have clear parameters for what we can do and what we can't do. Um, and part of what I think is so disorienting about reentry is um, the reintroduction of, of choice. Yeah. Um, you suddenly have so many more opportunities and so many more decisions, um, and, and that feels overwhelming. Um, yeah. And there's a degree of uncertainty. About how to proceed and, and mm-hmm. what you want to carry with you from, from the experience you're emerging from, and, and what that means. Um, and I also think, um, you know, in these periods of isolation, whether they're chosen or forced, um, there's a, a clarity that comes with that mm-hmm. um, and a kind of rerouting of priorities. And then when you find yourself in a position of being able to, you know, re-enter the world or to navigate um, the world beyond your windows, um, it's, at least for me, it, it's hard to know always how to um, apply that clarity and apply what's been learned to whatever comes next.
0: Yeah, uh, along those lines, do you, cause I, I agree, I, I feel like trivial things that maybe I didn't realize were trivial when I could see, I have, I I have a big family and it's chaos all the time. And like, you know, there's these petty squabbles. you know, siblings will have, or like, you know, being sassy about one of how my sister might be teaching one of her four kids, even though I don't have kids myself, like, you know, like those little things that now I'm just like grateful to FaceTime with them. And so I'm I'm like realizing these small things that like I would stress about Mm -hmm. I mean, aren't, as important like after you know overcoming everything that you did like do you find small things to be a little like do you not worry about them as much soon things like even like deadlines or like like do you find yourself understanding their like place in the grander scheme of things or do you still worry about them have you like been able to I don't want to say return to normalcy because none of us are having a normal life right now but like do things like that stress you out less or do you still find yourself thinking about
1: them? It's such a good question. I mean, I remember about a year after I finished cancer treatment, I was having lunch with a friend and my hair was awkwardly growing out and I had a kind of pseudo mullet and I made some comment about like having a bad hair day and being embarrassed about my Mm -hmm. mullet. Uh, And my friend Jen turned to me and said, don't be an asshole. (laughs) <laughs> you're so lucky to have hair and yeah. I said you're so right um but the bigger thing that I felt was that it was such a privilege to get to fret about mm-hmm. the small things yeah uh it meant that I was well enough and healthy enough to worry about trivial trivial mm-hmm. things like my hair um so I think you know it's a balancing act on the one hand um you know we do get these um epiphanies and, and and realizations that come uh when our life has been dramatically disrupted or mm-hmm. we feel somehow a heightened sense of our mortality and that's useful information yeah. um, But also if we were all to live every day as if it were our last, uh, Mm -hmm. we would a first all go immediately bankrupt and our world would probably combust into flames. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm always, you know, struggling to find that balance to, to hold on to those kind of bigger realizations or priorities while also trying to return to some semblance of, normalcy and even yeah. to kind of revel in, in the small things because it's a privilege to be able to revel mm-hmm. and worry about the small things
0: yeah it's it's not your job to be like the person up on the mountain that everyone hikes to to get like this life-changing advice like yeah sometimes you want to be a human being I imagine just be like yeah I want to <laughs> complain about onions on the sandwich that I got takeout from like it's yeah
1: exactly I,
0: is that, is there ever a frustration from you about people like asking you for like some massive piece of advice? Cause I imagine when you sit down to be interviewed or even just like, if you are speaking with someone and they might know who you are, or they're familiar with your column in New York times, like, and they're like, wow, can you tell me, like, does it ever get exhausting to be like, Suleika, tell me something that is going to change my life. Like, mm-hmm. do you ever just want to be like, Yes, I survived cancer. Yes, I have this platform, but I also am a human being.
1: Well, so the interesting thing is long before I'd written anything or, or was published after my diagnosis, um, I found that there was this way in which illness made it such that, you know, pretty much overnight with my diagnosis, people were suddenly calling me brave and inspiring and yeah. strong. And that never really resonated with me because it Mm -hmm. you know this diagnosis wasn't something that i had chosen or Uh. wanted um and so those kinds of adjectives didn't feel earned Mm -hmm. and i also think you know when you're someone who is staring down the imminent possibility of death there's this way in which people seem to Um, and their minds transform you into that mountaintop sage. Like there's something about being close to death um, that I think bestows a weird, you know, kind of like -like, saint-like celestial quality on them. And I found that all very disorienting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, bumped up against that sort of heroic survivors narrative over and over and over again yeah. uh, during my treatment. And it, it was a big source of frustration for me, yeah. even though I know that people meant well. Um, but the kind of real acts of, of bravery um, and of strength, I think, um, for me, were the ones that were within my control. It wasn't the very fact of surviving or having gotten this diagnosis, but it was how um, I, I wanted to measure myself based on how I kind of responded mm-hmm. uh, to these circumstances. Um, I have a quote, let me see if I can find it. I keep all, I have a big stack of post-it notes mm-hmm. and um, quotes and things that I write down, it's under my laptop because I've been thinking about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's this line from uh, Victor Frankel that I think a lot about and he wrote, between stimulus and response, there is a space, and that space is our power to choose our response. And our response lies our growth and our freedom. Um, and so, to me, that that idea of like mm-hmm. how we respond to the inciting event, to the stimulus, uh, feels like the real test and and measure of, of character and of strength.
0: Yeah, I I love that so much. I um. I have a friend that I've known since college that she, this past February celebrated her 19th anniversary of her heart transplant. Mm -hmm. And um, she, it's the same thing. She always says like, everyone always wants to ask about her journey, quote unquote, of receiving a new heart and how much courage it took. And she likes to joke all the time. She's like, I'm not brave because the powers that be gave me a shitty heart. She's like, If you want to talk about my quote unquote bravery, talk about the things I've done in the past decade, where she works with this place in Cleveland here called the transplant house and how Mm. she's basically like dedicated her life to working with, um, like life bank to make sure that people are signed up to be Mm. an organ donor and to, you know, to give blood as frequently as possible. And because she said, she's like, you know, the, the brave person was the father who said, yes, my daughter just passed away and this heart that was hers can go to someone else. She's like, I'm alive because of someone else's brave actions. And she's like, and I've tried to, you know, not pay that for but she's like, I've tried to use this life that I've been given to mm-hmm. be brave. But like you said, that the bravery didn't come in laying in that hospital bed for her. She's like, I had to lay in a hospital bed. <laughs> I wasn't awake doing the surgery myself. They put a heart in my body that I can now take advantage of. Yeah. I, does that get exhausting having people throw these adjectives about your, you know, your fight?
1: Yeah. I mean, it is exhausting in a sense. Um, and I also though, like have reflected on on why it is that we grasp for those adjectives. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, our culture is really uncomfortable talking about hard things, especially mm-hmm. death or the yeah. possibility of it. And so you know, instead of it becoming an opportunity for for a, a really vulnerable, kind of raw conversation, uh, we plaster, we plaster over, that discomfort mm-hmm. and, and those fears with all kinds of like bumper sticker slogans and platitudes. Yeah. And there were so many of them. I mean, like search for the silver lining or my, my least favorite, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Oh. Because of course, you know, it felt like God had sure as hell given me more than I could handle.
0: Yeah. yeah that, that, thinking about that, like the concept that, I mean, obviously that's like, I feel like that's a whole other podcast of like the concept <sighs> of like a higher power and like what they give up. And like, just the thought of like there's infinite cosmos and universes and like this person or this thing that created all of it is going to care about this like individual person on this one planet. Yeah. But, um, I, when, when writing this and going through, and then I know, and I know you also did the audio book, um, you know, so rereading the stuff that you had read and worked on, like, was it cathartic to do it? Or, I mean, I know that the, like, the actual journey of going to speak with all of these different people who would connect with you, I imagine there was a lot of catharsis there. But, like, was there a feeling of, like, it felt better to get this story down on, on paper and then now mm-hmm. <laughs> endlessly talk about it with people like me? Or is it something that you were removed enough from everything you'd experienced that it was just like, Oh, I have a story. I think I should share.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I think when we talk about writing, there's this kind of like a false division between like writing that feels cathartic and mm-hmm. then serious literature. Yeah. And so when people would ask me that question in the past, I would always say, no, it's not catharsis. Like this mm-hmm. is my work. Um, but the truth is like all writing feels cathartic for me. And um, I think, um, you know, the opportunity to get to excavate these memories Mm -hmm. and to kind of search for the truths behind the truths behind the truths um, was a kind of catharsis, even Mm -hmm. when it felt really difficult and I wanted to just kind of hit my forehead against the desk. Um,
0: Well, that's part of the writing process too. You have to do that. Always.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, um, you know, whether I'm writing like a reported story about someone else or I'm writing a personal essay or right now I'm kind of toying with some ideas for, for fiction. I think I'm always trying to write towards some unanswered question that I'm Mm -hmm. grappling with. my own life um and the truth is like even since uh this book coming out I'm still understanding that story differently Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's the magic of of writing and and the subconscious is you can write your way towards something and even when you finish writing it and you think you've kind of understood it Mm -hmm. um, you reread it again and realize, oh, actually, I was writing yeah. about this, not about the thing I, I thought I was writing about.
0: Well, it's it's, it's so interesting, because um, I've had so many authors tell me over the years that people suggest, oh, write what you know. And then, interestingly, uh, recently, I interviewed this author, Emma Stonex. She lives in England, and she wrote this book called The Lamplighters, which I think just came out maybe like yesterday. Um, <laughs> congratulations, but, Emma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's but she was she wrote this book about um, it's this book, this The Lamp Layers, and it's this book about this thing that happened in 1900 where three lighthouse um keepers in 1900 like disappeared and it was off the coast of Scotland and it's there's it's an unsolved mystery, quote unquote. And she was so fascinated by the story and she was told by um, uh, one of her like professors, write about stuff you don't know. And mm-hmm. she's like, so I knowing nothing about lamp lighthouses, decided <laughs> to write a whole mystery novel about them. And it was beautiful. And it's a wonderful book. But like, it's interesting, this concept between, oh, write what you know, or write what you don't know, because you this book I met as was really both for you, right? It was like, mm. obviously your story. But then, you know, there's a lot of like you said, you're still discovering about maybe other people will, will take it or also just like even something as simple as when you wrote about like learning how to drive uh-huh. there's so much there that's both
1: yeah I mean I think for me it's a combination of both those things like I write from the place that I know toward the place that I don't know yeah. if that makes sense mm-hmm. this idea of writing what I didn't want to know about myself became my kind of marching orders uh in the writing of this book So interesting.
0: Um, There's two things that are kind of connected that I want to ask you about. One is the hundred day project, which I am now obsessed with, and uh, Uh I have been noodling since I finished your book on like what I want my hundred day project to be. Uh
1: Talk
0: about that in a second, but and how it connects to you've created this thing called the isolation journals, which Uh I am also obsessed with. So, Uh first, can you explain to our listeners who haven't read Between Two Kingdoms yet what the hundred day project is? Because I cannot stop thinking about, I think I'm going to spend hundred <laughs> days thinking about my hundred day project, but like <laughs> what it is and how it sort of, um, helps you maybe, you know, find a writing voice or however it, it helped yeah. you.
1: Yeah. So that first summer, um, after my diagnosis, I spent it in isolation in a hospital room and I was in a really low down place. It was a dark place and then angry one. And I was like, intent on setting the world record for the number of Grace Anatomy episodes watched (laughs) consecutively. So when I wasn't sleeping, that's what I was doing. Uh, And my friends and family, understandably, were a little concerned. And so someone came up with the idea of doing a 100-day project, and the concept was really simple. We were each going to do one creative act every day for 100 days. Um, And I think the idea was to, to create some sense of accountability and, and to find something that felt low stakes but fun and productive for us to do during this strange time of um, living out of hospital rooms. So my dad wrote down a hundred uh, childhood memories that he compiled into a little book and gave to me at the end of it, my mom, who's a painter, I painted a ceramic tile every day that she assembled into a shield and hung above my bed. Uh, she called it Suleika's shield and told me it had protective powers. Um, and for my 100-day project, I returned to the thing I'd always done during my most difficult passages, which was keeping a journal. Um, and I made a commitment to write every day for 100 days. It didn't matter uh, the quality. It didn't matter how long. Often it was just, you know, a couple of sentences. Sometimes it was just the f word. Um, but something interesting started to happen while I was keeping that journal. Um, the first was which I, you know, was able to kind of tap back into my love of writing. But I noticed my writing was changing, um, and I started to use that journal almost as a kind of reporter's notebook. Mm. Um, And I was recording, you know, overheard conversations among the nurses. I was writing about the different characters, other patients I was meeting in the hospital. I was surveying the quality of the hospital cafeteria food. I was, you know, really writing from the front lines of my hospital bed. Um, And by the end of that 100 days, I realized I had a body of work. And much later, it became the source material for my New York Times column, Life Interrupted. Um, but at the beginning of the pandemic, as you know, we all found ourselves uh, stuck at home in isolation. Mm-hmm. I started to think about how I could bring that project to a bigger community. Yeah. Um. So that's how the Isolation journalist was born. Um. And we send out free journaling prompts from all kinds of amazing artists and mm-hmm. thinkers and community leaders. Um. And by the end of that first month, we had over 100,000 people who'd signed up, which was wild Mm -hmm. and a little terrifying (laughs) because it was supposed to be my side project (laughs) while I was finishing the book and finishing grad school. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, you know, to me, the journal is this really unique space where we get to do uh, the writing that doesn't count. Yeah. Um, and something for me about being creative in a low-stakes environment Mm -hmm. is the thing that allows me to kind of write in my most unedited voice and it's this incredibly liberating space Um, and so I'm a big proponent of journaling it's a big part of my writing process for the Mm -hmm. writing that does count Um, most of my first drafts of things live in my journal before Mm. they ever make it onto uh, a word doc (laughs) Um, but yeah
0: well and and that's I feel like just like the simple concept of giving someone a prompt because if you like if if you put an empty word document in front of someone and be like journal they're like about what but if you just (laughs) ask like a simple question like you know what's the first thing you're gonna tell your mom when you see them? Or it's like, oh, yeah. okay. There's a question for me. Yeah, I. <laughs> yeah, that I, I love that so so much. I just want to make sure people were aware of that, and they can uh-uh. they can still they can go to your website, correct? And they can still like yeah. join and everything. It's still going on.
1: They can go to the isolationjournals.com. Um, yeah, and so we send out these prompts once a week on Sundays. We also have an archive, we call it the archive of human creativity where people get to submit their journaling entries, mm-hmm. um, which has been really interesting. to just see how uh, people interpret a single prompt in so many different ways and yeah. in so many different genres. I mean, journaling, you know, the beauty of it is that there are no constraints. Some people mm-hmm. journal through painting, others journal through songwriting, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been it's been uh, probably the highlight of this last year. Yeah,
0: it um, makes me so happy. Um, okay, so towards the end of our podcast, we like to ask nine lighthearted questions that we call the nerd nine, because I like alliteration. And, <sighs> um, I used to call them rapid fire. And then people would say, Adam, please stop saying that because I get on tangents all the time. Um, but the, the first one is, uh, what is the last book you finished reading?
1: Mm, uh Excellent question. The last book I finished rereading um, is The Collected Schizophrenias by Esme Weijin Wang.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite place to read?
1: Uh, I bought this reclining armchair off of Craigslist that's in my office, and it's incredibly comfortable, and I feel like I'm lying in bed. Okay, uh, no one
0: else is going to see this. Is it the chair behind you right now yes, it, is. it looks ludicrously comfortable i actually <laughs> noticed that i was like oh my god i want to lay in that
1: i actually even uh put a really soft fluffy sheepskin over it mm-hmm. which somehow just yeah um increases its allure and makes me <laughs> want to spend all day every day reading for many hours um in that chair oh man every Again, no every else. reader every writer needs a really excellent reclining armchair
0: yeah, I, again, no one else will see this on our Zoom. Man, I like looked at it when you first logged on. I was like, oh, I want to sit there. Uh-huh. Um, do you remember the book that maybe made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid?
1: My mom read me Withering Heights out loud over the, it took us a couple months to get mm-hmm. through it when I was in the second grade. Um, and I was like thinking, yeah, yeah, she was a very, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, evolved evolved mom, but I remember, yeah, just being so enchanted uh, mm-hmm. and, and thinking to myself, huh, I think I'd like to also be able to tell stories, maybe not quite on that level, but in my own way.
0: Um, this next one is a weird question admittedly to ask over the past year, but when we can travel again, where is some place you'd like to go that you have not yet visited?
1: Mm, um, I'd like to go to Algeria.
0: Do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate Christmas? Are you a coffee person or a tea person?
1: Both, but I'm on my third coffee of the day right now. So (laughs) I'll I'll go with coffee.
0: Um, Anyone who listens to your, or reads your book will know. I think the answer to this one, but cats or dogs.
1: Oh, dogs. Yeah. Big time.
0: (laughs) Um, Do you have a favorite food?
1: You know what? You can never go wrong with a good grilled cheese sandwich beautiful
0: okay last one of these if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead who would you pick I know I'm sorry I I, like I regret ever writing this question down but it's been years now so I have to keep asking
1: it (laughs) okay so many people are coming to mind but the person who comes to mind right now is Cheryl Strayed um I have been reading a lot of travel memoirs um since my book came out I couldn't read them while I was working on the book because they felt too close yeah um and so yeah I've been I've been reading wild and and tiny beautiful things again um and thinking of her and wishing very much we could kind of compare notes not just about the experience of going on these epic boondoggles that we did in our (laughs) 20s but the the act of writing about them
0: I think that's perfect. Um, okay. Last question for you. So like, uh, if you, uh, what do you help readers take away from reading between two kingdoms?
1: I think there's a sense when we emerge from a difficult situation that we have to move on, um, and that we have to kind of put the wreckage of the past behind us and, mm-hmm. and start living again. And, um, I wish two things. One, that they realize moving on is a myth and that in fact, it's gonna be more of a process of moving forward and that they also find some way to honor that space between no longer and Mm -hmm. not yet, be it with a road trip or some other kind of ritual or rite of passage.
0: That is absolutely perfect. I haven't been able to stop thinking about your book and it was so much, such a joy to be able to chat with you Suleika, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much, Adam. Adam is my brother's name. Um, So I feel a a kind of immediate um, tenderness towards anyone I meet who's named Adam. Uh, This is so fun and I'm so honored and I can't wait to hear it and to dive into your other uh, podcast interviews. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com.